Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, you guys. Welcome to another episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm Megan Dwyer. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Candace McGarvey, a financial life coach with Willow, a woman-owned fintech company. Candace and I met earlier this year, and we instantly connected. We're so much alike, and we're both so driven by our passion of empowering women around money. Candace is an incredible wealth of knowledge, and her expertise in this area, combined with her curiosity and empathetic nature, make her an unbelievable coach and supporter for women. I'm so excited to share this episode with you guys. There are so many amazing little nuggets for you all to take in. But first, here's a little bit more about Candace. Candace McGarvey changes the way people think about and behave around finances. Her professional background weaves together the threads of different industries and causes, but in each position, there has been a unifying theme. She consistently makes powerful connections with people while offering wisdom during difficult times. After many years as a financial planner, in 2013, she set out to increase the financial wellness of women by putting together two words she had never heard used as a phrase, financial and coach. Today, her financial coaching includes advising other financial organizations on the most effective ways to serve women in traditionally marginalized communities. In 2010, Candace became a founding leader at Directions for Women, an organization working to change the conversation around women and money. The work tied together all of Candace's professional strengths and her experience mothering a chronically ill child with an expensive disease. Candace utilizes her expertise in not only financial matters, but spiritual and emotional as well. Her coaching methods prepare clients to engage more fully in their finances while also experiencing the calm of financial wellness. You guys, she's amazing. And this conversation is one of my favorites. In our conversation, we talk about money dynamics in relationships. We talk about the importance of having balance when it comes to our money, finding peace around money, what financial wellness means, and so much more. You guys can find more from Candice on trustwillow.com. This is the platform where she provides financial coaching. And on that website, you can also check out Willow's awesome content library, which is focused around different life events, something really cool to look at, I think, no matter where you are in life. I can't wait to share this episode with you guys. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the amazing Candice McGarvey. Enjoy. Hi, Candice. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to talk with you because we both share this common passion of educating and empowering women around finances. We're also both certified financial planners and have dedicated our careers to this work because we want to make a difference in people's lives. So we are already very simpatico. Um, I'd love to start by having you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and the work that you, the specific work that you're doing now. 
Okay. Um, I am a financial life coach with Willow. Um, and we are a women owned fintech company that serves advisors and consumers for financial advisors. We are helping them get more comfortable with serving the new majority clients. Since we know that the United States is going to be uh, all of those, those cultures that we consider minorities now are actually going to be the majority by 2044. Um, so we're sort of helping the industry get ready for that. Um, and then I, my real passion, and this is where it all started, was financial coaching for women. Before I had this job at Willow, um, I, about 15 years ago, was a wealth manager and financial advisor. And I would look across the conference room table at my clients. Oftentimes it was a couple. And I just got this feeling that we were absolutely not helping them sleep at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. as I, you know, grew, had started a family and really start to get in touch with what adulting was all about, uh, sleeping at night became a real focus for me. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the, we weren't, yeah, the fact that we weren't doing an adequate job of that. And specifically, I felt like a lot of the wives in the couple, um, were even more concerned about their financial position after our meeting. And once again, that was not, (laughs) never was the, um, our, you know, stated emphasis of the meeting was to freak you out. So, um, I sort of tried to figure out what could I do that would help people get better sleep at night and just become more confident and, um, not as stressed about their money. And I kind of put together the words financial and coaching. Um, those had not yet been paired together. And I had a lot of, um, a lot of peers say, well, that's never going to make any money. And I was like, I know, but I have to try. Yeah. So, um, it has, it has been a long 12 years or so of, um, trying to build that idea um, of financial coaching as an industry. And, um, so when the founder of Willow came along in 2019 and said, I want to create a company around this financial coaching for women idea. Um, now I am part of a larger network with a bunch of other financial coaches who were also advisors and who, um, you know, have so many of the same passions that I do. Um, so it's really neat that, you know, Willow created a community for me to do this work, which really emphasizes financial wellness. And we consider that certainly there's a practical dollar amount there, but it also has emotional and spiritual components. Yeah. And so um, that's really what we are doing is trying to reach consumers with the idea that that you don't have to lose sleep around money. It is just one of many important resources and we can build systems that will help bring some, you know, some calmness to this topic that is so often, you know, a real driver of stress. Oh, very often a driver of stress. Aren't there statistics around the number of divorces as a, that are money related? You know, it's interesting. I think money gets a bad rap. Um, 
Yes, I think there's that that a lot of divorces. I believe the number is more than fifty yeah. percent of divorces cite money as an issue as the cause. Um, I actually, you know, counsel a lot of couples, and I think if we go a little bit deeper, we find it's not money that was the cause. It is the the way we are communicating with one another about it, yeah. and a lot of that is driven by the fact that we. We tend to marry our financial opposite. Mm. So to put it in really plain terms, let's say spenders and savers, like 90%. And I actually worked for a woman who, who did a study around this and she found that 90%, oh, her, her name is Olivia Mellon. She's the best. And I've heard of great. her. Yes. Yeah. She's added so much to our industry. Um, but she found that about 90% of couples married their financial opposite. Well, that's a staggering statistic even in itself. However, when she looked at those who did not marry their financial opposite, so for example, two spenders married each other, the majority of those couples had one person polarized to the opposite end because the bottom line is a dyad works better when there's balance. Mm-hmm. So in a marriage to have a spender married to a saver actually is a good dynamic for the yeah. relationship. Does it cause conflict? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and for the most part, I, I, I know that even as I had all of my financial certifications and was just sort of delving into this financial coaching role when I met Olivia Mellon. And one of the first things she asked me was what's the best financial personality. And I told her it was mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is what most of us do. We assume that we're right. And that all the other financial personalities are wrong. When in fact, each one has its, it it has its cons, but it has some really great strengths to it. And so if we can look at, um, our spouses or significant others and appreciate what they bring to this relationship instead of thinking that they're wrong, (laughs) that tends to eliminate a lot of the money conflict. It doesn't mean you're going to eliminate all of it, but it's just a completely different mindset. Um, And and I think it's one of those ways that we need to become a little more self-aware about money and the way we relate to it. Um, I think if we did that, there would be less divorces that were, you know, attributed to money conflict. So, um, so yes, that's a, it's a really high statistic, but I think it's worth drilling down and looking at what's really going on in the communication in each couple. Yeah. And I agree with that so much. I mean, I think that it's important to have both that balance, right. To have kind of opinions on both sides of of things. And, um, my personal situation is similar. I mean, I'm somebody who grew, who grew up with, you know, that money doesn't grow on trees mentality and, you know, like kind of getting that, that more scarcity vibe from my parents, whereas my husband did not. And he still, you know, doesn't look at the prices of things and is a little more impulsive than I am. And will call me up and be like, Hey, I just booked a hotel room for this weekend and you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh, the first thing I think of is, Oh my God, how much did that cost? Right. And yet he's only thinking about having fun and, and having a good time. And to be perfectly honest, I need more of that in my life. I need more. I need that. Like he is a good balance for me because I wouldn't 
probably do many fun things if I didn't have that influence on that side. Oh, I know I wouldn't either. And my husband um, still talks about the time it took me two years to figure out what car I was going to buy. Yeah. Like <laughs> I was driving, you know, this broken down thing for two extra years um, because a big purchase like that stresses me out. Yeah. And so I find that I have to research and research and research until I get comfortable. And at some level, there is a benefit to someone who researches things, but there's also a real need for being able to pull the trigger on a transaction when you need it, yeah. and not, yeah. not yeah. when you're comfortable necessarily. So, so yeah, I, I appreciate the balance my husband provides as well. So yeah, but again, financial opposite. And when you think about like when you're raising kids, it's understood that it's sometimes good to have a good cop and a bad cop, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, we play the, that role very right. well and it reverses, right? Sometimes exactly. I'm the good cop and sometimes I'm the bad cop. It just depends yeah. on the but, situation. Yeah. You need the balance, right? Yeah. So it, this is just one more incidence of that. When money topics are coming around, yeah, we need the balance more than we need to be right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and related to that, what I'm hearing is it's also, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I tend to approach the world. <laughs> yeah. I tend to approach the world in black and white, right? All or nothing terms. Right. And so that in this case is like, you know, my way or the highway. And I think what this, this notion of balance that we're introducing here, it, we're talking about it in the context of relationships and money, but I think it applies to so many other aspects of money in our life. Right. And, and, you know, you can't, I, I think about it in the form of like budgets, right? Like everyone's like, get the budget, stick to the budget. If you have these goals, but you also have to like have that balance. It's like, it's, I, I think of budgets also as like diets, right? It's like all or nothing you're on it or you're off. Right. And your but and with a budget, you're on it or you're off. You're either going crazy, spending all these dollars over here, not paying attention, or you are like tight. Right. So you have to have this balance. Like it's, you, you can't live life. And my, uh, this is what I've been learning over the years. It's taken me a lot of time. Cause you know, I keep feeling like it's, you know, this all or nothing, but I'm really realizing that this, that, that introducing a little bit of both into your life is how it all works and yeah. having that balance is healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so many people, when we're dieting, the, um, there is definitely some, some pride if we're having some success, but then right. there's also this restrictive mindset um, that can really make you feel even more desperate for the thing you can't have. And shame um, too. And, oh yeah. Lots of shame, lots of shame. So, um, so yeah, that all or nothing approach is not really practical. You've got to have that balance in order for it to be successful. So, um, a lot of times I find myself just using different semantics, um, and kind of a different mindset, for example, budget, sounds a lot like diet. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've it done, feels like diet. I've done a whole episode on that, the, the right. dreaded B word, right? <laughs> exactly. And then, but then nutritional plan sounds a little more like spending plan. Yeah. And, um, Soccer. it turns out they kind of feel the same when you focus on, um, you know, a, a spending plan is often derived 
from what are your motivations? Like, are you motivated to give? Are you motivated to save? Um, so then the spending becomes, you know, the, the second or third uh, priority. And you're doing that in order to accomplish some goal that really means something to you. Um, so it doesn't become this, you know, restrictive exercise as much as it becomes a means to a really important end. Uh, so that's, I think you're right that balance is the key to probably all of it. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's coming to my mind now too, is something I talk about all the time on the show is, is this notion of intention, right? And for so many women in particular moms, we are like, I don't know. I mean, we just wake up in reactive mode many days. Right. And well, so we have to, because we have to shove so much in the day. Exactly. No time for lollygagging. Right. And if, and, and if you're, if you're try to give yourself like a second to sleep, that's the day that, you know, the kid, your kid's going to wake you up at five 30, maybe not your kids. Cause they're a little bit older, but mine certainly do. And, um, and it's like, I, I feel like I'm already, you know, in this like rat race, the second I wake up. Right. So you know, it doesn't have to be first thing in the morning, but I feel like what I'm learning is that it, we, it's so important to incorporate some kind of like downtime or just opportunity to slow down a little bit and to like hop off the proverbial treadmill, as I like to say, to give yourself that time to really focus on, okay, what, what is important to me? What are my values? Um, what are my intentions? Right. And, and that is the underlying like thread to all of this. And I think as women, we, we want to, and moms, we want to do everything for everybody else. Right. Because that gives us happiness that gives us, you know, general joy and fulfillment. Right. But does it? And I think, I think when we're neglecting ourselves and, and what's underneath all of it and what we really want, that can get us in a dangerous position. Well, I'm the poster child for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had a, I, I have a son with a chronic illness and managing it during the younger years was just really brutal. He has, yeah. he has type one diabetes as an infant. And so I became a pancreas and let yeah. me tell you, that is not an easy job description. Um, and yeah. after several years of all of that, I started developing some, my own chronic illnesses, um, after having been so healthy most of my life. And it really, I remember people telling me at the time, you have to take care of yourself. And I got so angry with them. I'm like, I get that I have to take care of myself. But I mean, in this case, if I fail the duties of a pancreas, we're actually, you know, this is a life or death situation. Yeah. Um, and so I, I recognized that I was doing myself in and I still made the choice. And I think that's, it's a really hard decision. Um, looking back now, I wish I had figured out a way to be more balanced. Um, but it's just so hard well, when you're in the of that kind of situation when you're in it. And then you get that like unsolicited advice, like take care of yourself. For me, that would make me so angry too. When I remember those early days of, of, of having newborn and I, with my second, I had tremendous 
postpartum depression and anxiety. And I was just in this, like a bad place. And everyone's like, take care of yourself. And I'm like, what does that even mean? What do you mean? How, what, tell me what that means. Right. <laughs> right. Cause it's the specific. other thing. Like we're not taught yeah, how to specific. take care of ourselves. Yeah. I would have, I, I wish I had said, could you be more specific with yeah. that suggestion and provide the means? So yeah. if you want me to take care of myself, you come watch the kid. Yeah. Like, and tell the, me, the, kick me just, physically kick me out of the house. Tell me to go take please. a walk or, you know, whatever, yeah. go get your nails done, whatever it is, just yeah. breathe. Right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I remember, specific. I remember at one point, um, a doctor actually wrote down a prescription for me. And he said, you need a mom. Yeah. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. You need a mom. Like you need some people to just come around and take care of you. My mom was 3000 miles away. It just wasn't in the cards. So I, I, and, and so often I look back on that as if I were mothering me, (laughs) yeah. What would I do differently? Um, and so yeah, I, I get, I know that those who, you know, offer suggestions probably really have the perfectly great reasons behind it. Um, but I wish I had maybe followed it up with, okay, how can you help me take care of myself? Exactly. Exactly. Because I didn't have the wherewithal, just like you said, to figure out what that meant. Yeah. And if you're in such a place of like deep overwhelm and Mm -hmm. anxiety, like how it's very hard to pull yourself out of that and just say like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Pedicure is going to fix everything. It's not, it's not. (laughs) No, but it does. But, and it it sounds ridiculous, but when I got the right pedicure and that was only a couple of years ago, so I missed (laughs) all the tough years. I, I got it. Like I actually got relaxed. I felt like I was pampering myself. Um, so I think we have to learn to, to take care of ourselves and think of it as a muscle, just like any other Yeah, that has to be exercised and we have to get stronger at it Yeah, um, because it doesn't come easily to most of us. No. And I think that's because it wasn't modeled, right? Like, I think that yes, I, you're right. certainly for my, for me and my mother, like, I mean, and I think this is also just that whole generation. I mean, my mother played the martyr role so well. She, and and I I think that that's what I learned a mother should be from her, right? And so I think how else are we supposed to change those generational patterns if we weren't taught otherwise, right? And that's where this concept of like reparenting comes in. And I've had to do a lot of my own work on personally on how to, you know, be kinder to myself, to how to be compassionate, how to let go of these kind of like underlying beliefs that, you know, everybody needs me all the time. And it's still a work in progress. (laughs) It's been, it's been years. And we're one of the first generations to have so much responsibility. A lot of us, if you're working or, I mean, even the responsibility around mothering, has much higher expectations than it oh, yeah. did for previous generations. And that made sense given what was going on in those generations days, there was just a completely different culture then. Um, so we have to recognize, I 
I often say to my clients, you just have to recognize that your parents did the best that they could. Um, but those With the tools times, that they had at that time, right? Yeah, exactly. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough flexibility really to grow in all of these different areas that we now find ourselves lacking in. So we have increased opportunity, but we have not kept up with taking care of ourselves in the midst of all those opportunities. So I, I hope that we are going to be able to model it for our kids' um, generation so that they can sort of get both of those um both the taking care of yourself factor and the multiple opportunities factor, you know, in sync. Um, yeah. Cause I think we just haven't done a good job of that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think kind of taking that a step further, right? Like modeling that taking care of ourselves, right? Modeling the self-care, modeling the balance that we just talked about, modeling the self-compassion and the, you know, kindness to ourselves, all of that, I think, is that foundation for raising little people, as I like to say, with a healthy relationship with money, right? Because they're going to be able to see that, you know, okay, yeah, mom and dad, you know, they, mom and dad work hard for what we have. We have fun. We also, you know, don't have everything we want. We don't, it's not skewed to one direction or the other. And, you know, there's also... I want, I want my kids to have this ability to challenge kind of those underlying core beliefs rather than just like taking on or assuming a belief of somebody that's, that's not even yours, right? Like passing down those like generational beliefs. I want them to be able to start to have the, the knowledge, the curiosity of themselves. And this, I think also, um, plays into the worthiness conversation as well, right? Like if we're raised with that kind of like foundational level of curiosity and, you know, knowing that we're okay, just the way we are, then there's likely no need to have to achieve or, you know, create society's definition of success, right? Or, you know, have the money or, or the, the pile of things, right. In order to prove that we're okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, that emphasis on possession um, and, you know, some of some of the uh, focuses on achievement and all of that, I think are reflective of of another belief that we need to work on in this country. And that is the idea that you have more assets and resources than just money. Yes. I think so many people look at, you know, we, we talk about net worth all the time, which is measured in dollars. Um, but I like to remind my clients, you have wealth in other resources um, that could be skills. It could be relationships. Um, it could be passions. And those aren't measured by dollars. So if we can begin to see money as just one of our resources, yeah. um, it, that provides a lot more peace around money stuff. Um, one of the things that I have always found interesting is, and although this out this term is outdated, they actually call it called it back maybe twenty years ago the bag lady syndrome. Yes, in, in financial institutions, and that is defined as you can ask a woman 
about the bag lady syndrome and what she fears. And she immediately thinks she will reflect back that her, one of her greatest concerns is that she will outlive her money. When you ask men, do you have any concerns in terms of bag lady syndrome? Again, they don't self-identify because we're using the word lady. Um, But if you said bag man, they have no concept. And so what normally happens is you say bag lady and they talk about all of the women in their life that they are concerned are going to outlive their assets. Um, I have, I have demonstrated this with my clients. I have had uh, at the same time, a client with $3,000 in the bank and a client with $3 million in the bank. And both of them were, were talking about how stressed they are that they're going to outlive their money. Um, so it becomes not so much a socioeconomic status issue as much as it really is a gender issue. Men don't tend to have that fear that they're going to outlive their money or certainly not as prominently as women do. Um, so that is another, you know, way that, uh, I try to help clients come to a point of, you know, greater calm around money is, you know, if, if you are concerned that you're going to end up houseless at the end of your life, um, there are other resources that you have that could prevent that relationships being a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, it's been so indoctrinated in us that if anyone's going to take care of you, it's your kids. Um, but as we see now, that is, I mean, there are very few, three generation households, um, within, you know, what I would, would consider white Anglo-Saxon America. Um, and so we kind of have this lack of a safety net, um, and, and need to probably start looking at community as, as something that you intentionally build and that really can provide um, for some protection against that idea of being houseless at the end of your life. Yeah. Well, and also I like what you said around, you know, you have more resources than money because it, it takes the emphasis off of the number and it, it allows you to focus more on the feeling, the meaning, um, behind all the other aspects of your life. Right. And I think it also allows you to then, you know, cultivate gratitude and and really appreciate everything else that you have beyond just the numbers. It's so interesting. You said bag lady syndrome. I'd say, oh gosh, now probably three plus years ago, I actually did a presentation on bag lady syndrome and it it was so common for the longest time. And now when you say that, phrase to a, like the millennial generation, a lot of us haven't, a lot of them haven't heard about it, heard of, heard of that phrase per se, but that reflects back as you were speaking, that reflects back to something that you had said at the very beginning of this conversation, right? When you were, you know, as a, a financial advisor and you were sitting across the table from, from a couple and you could just tell that, that the woman just didn't have this sense of peace and calm and yeah. It's right. And so that all is interrelated, I think, to the importance and the uniqueness of women in particular and around money, around their relationship with money and how you know nuanced it, women are 
um, and how they need to be treated differently. They need to be kind of addressed differently and talked to and, and given the appropriate, a different, different kind of attention than the, a man does, at least, you know, in, in a typical relationship, I think. Right. Yeah. It's, we're certainly speaking in generalities here, obviously right. there are right. exceptions, but, um, but when you look at how women, um, at, at, well, you can look at the brain activity of men and women when you are doing something financial or talking about finance. And for women, it tends to be more in the area of the brain that deals with security. Mm-hmm. And for men, it tends to be in the area of the brain that is looking at competition or gamesmanship or mm-hmm. or even one-upsmanship. So we, we can acknowledge that the financial industry uh, was created for men, for sure, which is how we got to the financial advisor meeting with their client and going over what performance yes. of yes. the portfolio. Um, that really satisfies the the part of the brain uh, that talks about you know gamesmanship or or games, and and then when you pull back and look at a woman's brain she's really dealing with this whole conversation around money is revolving around, am I going to be secure for the rest of my life? Yeah. Which is why that bag lady syndrome is so, has been so prominent. Um, So that's one of the reasons why, as I sat across the conference room table, we were providing the man with gamesmanship and, you know, competition with the performance returns, but we weren't spending any time talking about, how are you doing with this? What are some of the feelings that this brings up for yes. you? Yes. Um, and you know, this, this concept also comes back to the marriage of, you know, financial opposites. Um, this is another factor that we have to consider when we're communicating around money is if a man brings it up and just wants to, you know, shoot the breeze about it. Um, he has to be careful that a woman might just be thinking about the security aspect and the fact that, you know, according to life expectancies, a woman is likely to live longer. So she is on her own with limited resources and that that's a scary thing. So that's another emphasis on how balance needs to happen, but also really insightful communication also needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent agreed. And you, you just said, you know, she's on her own with limited resources, not only limited resources, but limited education in my mind. And if you're going to continue to be working with the, the, the same advisors, right. Who are trained to only talk about performance and, you know, the portfolio and all of that, th- then it's just continuing this per- perpetuating this fear, this underlying fear that, that women have that they're, they're not going to be okay. And where I think it needs to shift is to having those conversations around feelings, having the conversations around what does this mean for me? Like, this is great. The numbers are great, but show me how long are these assets going to last? Like, what is the cash flow situation like? What is what, how do all these other different components of my financial life factor into this? And what does it actually mean for me? Like, what does this look like? Right. And um, I know because I, I came from a firm that, you know, that 
basically just kind of provided that investment management services in a silo and didn't look at it in the context of everything else. And agreed. I think there were so many women who just took the back seat in some, in those conversations because they were either too intimidated because they didn't know what we were talking about. And a lot of times the conversations would go over their heads, like around hedge funds or private equity or, you know, how mutual funds work and, and right. What were all of those topics? Uh, yeah, all of those topics are zeroing in on making more money. Yes. Right? Yeah. Whereas <clears throat> what she really wants to know is it going to be okay? Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, and it, it doesn't compute. Right. And, and it feels like the, that, the emotional component, the security side of it, all of that is just flat out being dismissed. And that frustrates yeah. me. <laughs> So much. Thankfully, I think that is changing. Yeah. But it has taken the industry, the financial industry, uh, way, way too long to figure that out. Oh, I agree with that. Um, that. Yeah. But I think we're we're headed towards better times. Yes. So before we wrap up, I wanted to circle back on one other thing you had talked about briefly, and that's this concept of um, financial wellness. And you, you described it, but I'd really want to talk a little bit more about like, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? And, and how do we get there? What is financial wellness? It's probably, uh, I'm guessing, you know, uh, different definitions depending on who you talk to, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. Um, I think it's important to contrast financial wellness to financial wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us, the focus has been on growing wealth and making every dollar as valuable as possible. Um, but financial wellness brings in the idea that, sure, um, let's maximize our dollars, but let's also monitor how it makes us feel emotionally and spiritually. So if I am you know, working my butt off and have no time for my kids, I'm going to suffer emotionally. If I am, you know, working for an employer who has a completely different value system than I do, um, that takes a toll on us spiritually. And so the idea is to try to find some balance. Now, it is fine. You can make any decision within that framework that feels good to you. Uh, It's just a matter of sometimes acknowledging, yes, I have to give this up. Um, so I, yes, I have to give up maybe maximizing every single dollar, or maybe I have to give up the fact that my employer, it just represents a completely different value system than I do, but that I think it's important to raise our awareness of the trade-offs that go between your practical finances and then your emotional and your spiritual side of them. So that's, that's really the idea. We are expanding the number of goals to not just be make as much money as possible, Mm. um, but to look at some of these other characteristics and, and really try to find a good balance for you. And that's another thing is everyone's going to have a different balance, you know, point. Whereas we never acknowledged that we thought you just had to make more money or as much money as possible. So it is a really helpful tool, I think, yeah, 
Um, and the best part about it is that once you get into a better balance, you don't tend to lose as much sleep. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. because you have a greater awareness of all of your other resources and you're no longer fearing, you know, being at the end of your life with limited resources and alone. I know for my, for my friends, we have this golden girls fallback model that says, you know, if worse comes to worse, we're all going to live together um, as, you know, widows or just never married. Um, and we're going to form our own community, you know, because life doesn't always happen the way we wish it would. Right. And I, for one, think that that can be a really, a really great model and a, and a fun safety net, like yeah. it could be a blast. So, you know, we just have to start expanding our imagination. Um, you know, there's, uh, there are a lot of people who feel like 65 is retirement age, um, because that's sort of the way it's been. But when you look at it in the larger context of history, you know, when the concept of retirement was created, it was during a time when the life expectancy was in your fifties. Right. So if you got to the point of retirement, good for you, you should rest a little. (laughs) And now it's sort of become this whole stage of life that we expect. Um, So, you know, we're, we're sort of challenging those assumptions. Maybe, you know, you won't ever retire fully, but there are still things that you can do in those later years. So just really, I think challenging the status quo assumptions um, is a big part of that financial wellness. Yeah. And, and I love that and finding what's right for you. And, you know, there's, I hate rules of thumb because everybody thinks that they're like rigid rules that you have to live your life by. Like I should do this. I should do that. Right. But it's, it's it's a guideline and that doesn't mean that it's what's best for you. Right. And doesn't, and and that doesn't mean what it's best financially, what's best emotionally, what's best, you know, like you said, spiritually and personally, it's interesting what you just said about retirement too. I was listening to another podcast the other day and they were saying how, you know, again, there was this mentality that you around retirement, that you work for 40, 50 years, right. And you put head down work focus, right. That's what you do. You earn all this money. And then once, once you retire, you, then you have your fun, right. Yeah. None of that is guaranteed. I mean, I come from my, my, my father got very sick, like the year after he retired and ultimately ended up passing away, but it's like, you can't take life for granted. So why not have some of that balance in your life? Now we don't just live to work, right. We and earn money. It's about so much more than that. So let's again, and this is, this was kind of a light bulb moment for me is like, let's try to find more of that balance, find more of that fun in life now, rather than waiting for some, you know, unknown time in the future that may or may not even happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so crucial. Yeah. And, and I think those realizations provide a lot of peace. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have some fun now, you know, I, as opposed to waiting until I'm 65. Yeah. So, so yeah, again, this concept of balance just keeps coming back. Yes. That's the theme. I'll make that, that definitely in the title for the episode. (laughs) Um, So 
before we wrap up, I would love to have you tell everyone where they can find more of you and and follow along with the work that you're doing and and just how people can, you know, hear more from you. Yeah, um, I am. You can find me at www.trustwillow.com. Um, that is the platform where I provide financial coaching and, um, you can set up a free account. Uh, we collect a couple of, of pieces of information from you in order to be able to send you reminders about coaching and things like that. Um, but it's, it's free to look around. Uh, we also have a, a pretty great content library that is organized around life events or life journeys. Um, and so you are likely to find something there that, that will um, that will speak to you. So all of that library is available once you sign up for an account there. So that's trustwillow.com. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Candace. I could talk to you all day. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're just so on the same page with this stuff. So um Thank you again so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure and um, I'm really looking forward to putting this episode out there in the world. I think people are going to love it. I hope so. I hope that it's valuable. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely.